Welcome back to Pastorally Correct. I'm Chris McLaughlin. I apologize for our delay in programming. We missed a week due to some technical difficulties that we were experiencing, but I trust that we have resolved those and we are moving forward. Last week, I wanted to talk to you about a headline, and so I'm going to discuss it with you this week. And that headline reads, Why I am now a Christian. These sort of testimonials are always interesting to read. I love to hear how God was working in somebody's life to bring them to a point of decision, how God is continuing to draw someone close to him, making them increasingly like himself. We're going to find that this publication is a little bit unique. In this article that we're going to read, uh, it comes from Unheard, uh, which is a British publication. And Unheard, by the way, is spelled U-N-H-E-R-D. And this is an article that was published on November 11th, 2023, and it is written by the subject of the article. Her name is Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, Ayan is interesting uh, and notorious. She has uh, been a controversial figure for quite a long time, for over 20 years, and uh, she has served as a prominent atheist up until this point. And as you can tell from the heading to this article, quite a bit has changed And so we're going to find in this article that she describes why she is now a follower of Jesus Christ. What has happened? But she begins first by looking backwards at what led to her atheism and sort of the spiritual journey that she experienced. Again, as I said, this is going to be quite unique from the stereotypical sort of uh, coming to faith experience that so many people have. And yet it's one that I think is both hope-inspiring and one that perhaps opens a door for us of awareness to a whole group of people in need of hearing the gospel message, perhaps people that we haven't thought a whole lot about. And so let's begin reading. Uh, She says, In 2002, I discovered a 1927 lecture by Russell entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. It did not cross my mind as I read it that one day, nearly a century after he delivered it to the South London branch of the National Secular Society, I would be compelled to write an essay with precisely the opposite title. The year before, I had publicly condemned the terrorist attacks of the 19 men who had hijacked passenger jets and crashed them into Twin Towers in New York. They had done it in the name of my religion, Islam. I was a Muslim then, although not a practicing one. If I truly condemn their actions, then where did that leave me? The underlying principle that justified the attacks was religious, after all. The idea of jihad, or holy war, against the infidels. Was it possible for me, as for many members of the Muslim community, simply to distance myself from the action and its horrific results? At the time, there were many eminent leaders in the West, politicians, scholars, journalists, and other experts who insisted that the terrorists were motivated by reasons other than the ones they and their leader, Osama bin Laden, had articulated so clearly. So Islam had an alibi. This excuse-making was not only condescending towards Muslims, it also gave many Westerners a chance to retreat into denial, blaming the errors of U.S. foreign policy was easier than contemplating the possibility that we were confronted with a religious war. We have seen a similar tendency in the past five weeks, as millions of people sympathetic to the plight of the people of Gaza seek to rationalize the October 7th terrorist attacks as a justified response to the policies of the Israeli government. Now, Ayana, she writes this, if you were to look into her background and a lot of things that she has said in public formats, you would find that uh, she was a Muslim woman who was raised in Africa, 
when the Muslim Brotherhood took over, uh, there were some devastating consequences. Uh, she herself, uh, as a young girl, she was, unfortunately, uh, she experienced the horrors of genital muta mutilation. And having experienced that sort of trauma, the way that she saw the Muslim Brotherhood later uh, affect her home country and uh, human rights, she fled uh, to, uh, to, to Holland and uh, she became a Dutch citizen. And uh, from there, she has worked in Great Britain and the United States and I trust in other places. And so uh, throughout that period, as somebody who grew up with a Islamic background, she has wrestled with questions of identity, of the faith that she professed, of some of the consequences for those belief systems. She wrestled with that and she came to a place where she no longer wanted to be affiliated with Islam, instead choosing the moniker of atheist. And so she published accordingly. She has been uh, well noted as a uh, representative of the new atheism, which is quite um, quite militant uh, in their uh, hatred of all things religion, especially of Christianity. And uh, so she would uh, have many engagements where she'd speak out against Christianity and other world religions, uh, recognizing as the other participants in the new atheism have that uh, religion is the root or the cause of all social evils. Uh, these would have been the things that she would have argued for. And of course, uh, incidences like 9-11 gave, uh, gave that sort of belief system life. It allowed people to say, well, this is the consequence of religion, so all religion is bad. Christopher Hitchens, who is so well known as a new atheist, and uh, he is no longer living, of course, but he had called Ayon uh, one of the greatest minds to have ever come out of Africa. And so uh, she uh, had earned the respect of her peers, especially those within the atheist community. And now she's describing sort of the emotions that she had after 9-11 and what she did as a Muslim. And it says, when I read Russell's lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easing. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism towards religious doctrine, discard my faith in God, and declare that no such entity existed. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I had lived for too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. While I had abandoned all the rational reasons for believing in God, the irrational fear of hellfire still lingered. Russell's conclusion thus came as something of a relief. When I die, I shall rot. Now think about her experience, and I know that perhaps you're listening to this and, and you grew up in a Christian background, but perhaps you're somebody who's wrestled with your faith. And so her words resonate with you, although from a different perspective. Perhaps you've abandoned faith in the Lord, but there's something about the teaching of hell that you have found to be problematic. And what happens if I am incorrect? What happens if I'm wrong? What happens if I spend eternity in hell? And, and she tried to find comfort in that by holding fast to Russell's words. When I die, I shall rot. And she continues to understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago. You first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Kenya in 1985. I don't think I even understood religious practice before the coming of the Brotherhood. I'd endured the rituals, uh, prayers, and fastings as tedious and pointless. And she talks about how the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed that instantly, how women suddenly were donning burqas and men were eager 
to uh, adhere to the Hadith, to uh, live out their lives following the customs and the practices of Muhammad. Uh, and it continues by noting that you either had to make that decision or choose to indulge in the pleasures of the world. Uh, and if you did so, you would earn Allah's wrath and be condemned to an eternal life in hellfire. She writes, some of the worldly pleasures, they were decrying included, uh, they were decrying included, included reading novels, listening to music, dancing, and going to the cinema, all of which I was ashamed to admit that I adored. The most striking quality of the mother brother, Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. She says, during Islamic study sessions, we formed, or sorry, we shared with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but who refused to accept our invitation to faith? In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the Prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also maintaining friendships and loyalty towards the unbelievers. If they had explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate and curse them. Here, a special hatred was reserved for one subset of unbeliever, the Jew. We cursed the Jew multiple times a day and expressed horror, disgust, and anger at the litany of offenses he had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the most holy mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corrupt of the heart, mind, and soul. She says, you can see why to someone who had been through such a religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Russell offered a simple zero-cost escape from an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible case for the existence of God. Religion, Russell argued, was rooted in fear. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious. Fear of defeat. Fear of death. We're going to hear that a lot. Anytime you engage with an atheist, you're going to hear them say, well, fear is the root of your belief system. Now, understand first that this actually can, commits the genetic fallacy. You can't disprove a truth claim based on its origin. You can't say, well, because you had a fearful response to this information, that renders it false. Uh, instead, we have to look at what the worldview teaches. We have to ask, does its claims correspond with the evidence pre presented? But when we are emotionally oriented, and all of us are to some and to varying degrees, uh, the reality that we see so much fear in the world, and sometimes even if we're being honest, expressed through religious worldviews, this allows people such as Russell, their war writings, he's been gone for quite some time, to resonate with a contemporary reader, and it did so for Ion. She says, as an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. I also found an entirely new circle of friends as different from the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood as one could imagine. The more time I spent with them, people such as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the more confident I felt that I made the right choice. For the atheists were clever. They were also a great deal of fun. So what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian? Now, she's going to give two reasons why she now calls herself a Christian. And I want you to note that the first one is quite unique as it pertains to testimonials. She says, part of the answer is global. You didn't expect that, did you? Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia, the rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West, and a viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. 
We endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools, military, economic, diplomatic, and technological efforts to defeat, bribe, persuade, appease, or surveil. And yet, with every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. We are either running out of money with our national debt in the tens of trillions of dollars, or we are losing our lead in the technological race with China. But we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we have an answer to the question. What is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal internal order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. She continues, That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity. From the nation state to the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market of conscience and of the press find their roots in Christianity. And so I have come to realize that Russell and my atheist friends fail to see the woods for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is the story of the West, warts and all. Russell's critique of those contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious but it is also too narrow in scope. For instance, he gave his lecture in a room full of, or at least former, uh, or at least doubting, Christians in a Christian country. Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it still is in non-Western civilizations. Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country, then or now, and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I Am Not a Muslim? In fact, a book with that title exists, written by an ex-Muslim, but the author published it in America under a pseudonym. It would have been too dangerous for him to do otherwise. To me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It, comes not, it does not come naturally to man. It is the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. It was these debates that advanced science and reason, diminished cruelty, suppressed superstitions, and built institutions to order and protect life while guaranteeing freedom to as many people as possible. Unlike Islam, Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. It became increasingly clear that Christ's teaching implied not only a circumscribed role of, for religion as something separate from politics, it also implied compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. That is an incredible paragraph, one of the best paragraphs I've ever read. That paragraph began with the phrase, to me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. But she continued, she said, uh, yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I also have found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Now, that is really an interesting testimony, isn't it? Very interesting. And as we read through that, you, you might note, as I've highlighted a few times, that there are some unique characteristics to this testimony. You don't have a a church camp setting or an altar call with just as I am playing in the background and somebody running forward and accepting Christ. You have a rational process. You have somebody wrestling with truth claims, competing truth claims as expressed in worldviews. And as she did worldview analysis and she saw the dangers of society 
And then she saw the, the inalienable rights uh, propped up through Judeo-Christian uh, belief systems. As she started to wrestle with these, she came to understand that the worldview assumptions of Christianity corresponded with, with truth, that the truth claims that were made corresponded with the evidence available. And so she said, this worldview leads to human thriving while the others simply lead to human suffering. Now, some of the criticisms that have been raised against her, and again, as I've said, she is a controversial figure. She spoke out against Islam after 9-11. Uh, she became a, a notorious um, atheist. Uh, and so you're going to garner people who are critics of you along the way. And now, even as she has professed her faith in Christ, it was fascinating. I read a subreddit on her, and uh, some people were speculating that she's some sort of double agent, that she's really still an atheist, but she's pretending to be a Christian. Uh, I, I still don't understand the exact rationale there, but uh, there were beliefs that, you know, she really hasn't come to sincere faith. She instead is making some kind of a worldview profession, and because she doesn't express that sort of deep theological uh, claim, like I had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. She actually doesn't mention the resurrection at all in this article. Now, that means that she must have rejected historic Christian faith, or perhaps she doesn't have any faith at all. It's just intellectualism or whatever it might be. But I think that that is actually missing the entire point of what she is saying. I want us to back up and understand that we all have theologies and, and our worldviews are a reflection of those. That we believe something to be true about God and we believe that thing to be true about God as it relates to our culture, to humanity, uh, our assumptions about what people are like. Are people inherently good? Where is where is humanity heading? Is there a purpose for life? Is there a meaning to any of this? Why is there something instead of nothing? All worldviews seek to answer those questions. And as she began to wrestle with those, she came to understand that atheism didn't really have an answer, that secularism did not. Now, what I just said might sound shocking to you on some level. Uh, for starters, you might have bought the lie that secularism is a neutral worldview that it is not a threat to anybody. Uh, it is. Uh, it doesn't have its own truth claims. It's not asking for people to be true believers and buy into some dogma. But can I tell you, that's exactly what secularism is. It has uh, specific truth claims. We need to ask, do they correspond with the evidence at hand? Do they lead to human thriving? Can you consistently live them out? And I'm going to argue that the truth claims made by secularism cannot be consistently lived out. They do not... They do not lead to human thriving, and they do not correspond with the evidence we have at hand. Among those, uh, Ion came to recognize that within atheism, although there's a lot of attacks on morality, especially within faith traditions such as Christianity and Islam, there is no objective morality within secularism, within any secular ideology. There are moral values that are contingent upon societies or cultures. There are subjective uh, principles as it, they relate to morality. Now, some, such as Sam Harris, have tried to fabricate some uh, in his publication, The Moral Landscape, but many, many scholars have pointed out the shortcomings of these sort of, of efforts. If we are simply the product of a, bio, uh, of a biological process, of an evolutionary process, if, we, if it's simply survival of the fittest, uh, then 
and all of us are simply going to die in the heat death of the cosmos. Why does it really matter what we do as it relates to one another beyond the survival of the species? Beyond that, what really matters? Is there an objective morality? The answer is no. And throughout, throughout the history of atheism, many famous atheists such as Nietzsche have, have spent a lot of time explaining that there is no purpose. We shouldn't even try to find a purpose or meaning in this life. We should ex accept that this is all that there is. We should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is as good as it gets, what we have right now. And for many people, as they begin to wrestle with these sort of claims, they find them to be unsatisfactory. Not simply because of our experience, because that doesn't sound pleasant, that's not what we want, but instead the question of why isn't that what I want? Why have we as people been created to crave something more than that? Why have we been created to crave purpose and significance if there is none whatsoever to offer? Why do we see order in this world? Why do we see evidence of a creator if there is not one? Why do the truth claims of Christianity lead to human thriving while the truth claims of secularism lead to human suffering? As she began to wrestle with these questions, she rightly understood that the rights that we that we endorse as United States citizens, rights that we understand are not given to us from a government, but instead bestowed upon us by a loving creator in whose image we have been made, that these, these rights, the right to a freedom of conscience, that they are not just for the Christian, that as Christians have argued this, which is consistent with their worldview, with our worldview, that it is one that does not simply originate in a vacuum. It's not one that comes natural to us. It's one that corresponds with a unique, a particular worldview, that being a Judeo-Christian worldview. We have understood the goodness of that worldview as it relates to the Christian and the atheist alike, regardless of one's worldview assumptions. If somebody's an atheist, if they're a Muslim, if they're Hindu, they're Christian, they're Buddhist, whatever they happen to be, in our country, you have the freedom to express the, the feelings that you have. You have the right to express the convictions that you maintain. And we would contend for those. And so she began to wrestle with all of that and said, you know, I believe that the claims that Christianity makes, that when we look at those claims, when we look at what they really believe about God, about humanity, about our purpose, about where human society is heading, these appear to be true. They are certainly more true than atheism has to offer, than any secular ideology. And so I will choose to believe this. It really is a profound statement of faith in, in my mind and of a conversion experience. With this, we are presented with perhaps awareness about a whole new category of people that we might not have ever thought about reaching before. And that would be the sort of person who's not going to reach be reached by entering into a church such as ours and hearing somebody like myself preach. They're not perhaps going to come forward to an altar call or because the lights are dimmed or music is played slowly and so the strings of their heart are tugged. Somebody who is going to come to saving faith because they understand that there are there is a cultural um, there is a cultural values there is a cultural expression I should say of whatever worldview you have that we are in a public sector we're dealing with these competing ideologies and we need to know what is true. Well, there have been many Christians who have been quick to respond to this reality in two different ways. They either respond in a militant way. We have to force people to adhere to a Christian morality and worldview. It is, 
we have to, by necessity, uh, force people to embrace these sort of doctrines. Now, these this is a fringe view, and it's one that's not commonly held by any uh, faith tradition within the United States, certainly, or denominational uh, structure. But at the same time, are there individuals who maintain beliefs such as that? Yeah, probably. Uh, at the same time, there are many who would say, well, we need to retreat from cultural engagement. We need to maintain this separation of church and state to the point that as it relates to public spaces, we completely vacate the, the space. We give that space over to secularism because we believe that it's a neutral worldview. We don't even try to compete there. We don't try to say that our faith tradition speaks credibly about any truth claim or it doesn't correspond with facts or it doesn't really matter how people ultimately live their lives. You do your thing. I do mine. I don't want to seem as though I'm offensive to somebody else. Well, can I tell you that it's important that we do neither of those things? We First off, we understand that from a Judeo-Christian worldview that we need not be militant. We embrace and we champion for individual soul liberty. We want people to have the freedom of conscience, understanding that each and every person will uniquely stand before God and give an account for his or her actions and beliefs. And so with that being stated, we want people to freely have the opportunity to hear the gospel message and to respond in saving faith. We don't want anybody to respond in faith under uh, compulsion, to feel as though they are forced to do so, or to be better Americans. That means to be a better Christian or something along those lines. Instead, we want people in a free land to freely hear the word and to respond in saving faith. That's the sincere desire that we have. And if people choose not to, we still love them Anyways, we respect their rights. We will contend for their rights, even if they believe things that undermine uh, our faith, even if they believe things that uh, that are said in hostile manners against Christianity. We still love them all the same and recognize their right to say those sort of things. At the same point, we do not retreat from cultural engagement. And Ion is a classic example of why we don't, because what we say does correspond with the evidence at hand. We are making truth claims. We are not simply teaching a fairy tale. We are not offering myths. We are saying that Jesus Christ is a historical figure who died on a Roman cross. He rose from the dead, and there are eyewitnesses to that fact. The church was founded as a consequence. The church exploded, spread rapidly around the known world because eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord said that the Lord said to them. He told them to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a truth claim. We believe that the evidence corresponds with that truth claim. And in all other areas of our faith, anything that scripture teaches, we believe that. And so we are not shy about that. We don't have to run and hide. We don't have to pretend that secularism is a neutral worldview. It is not. It projects things that are not true about the origins of humanity, about our purpose or lack thereof, of morality, of the, the concluding chapter of what will happen to humanity and the world at large. As Christians, we do not vacate those spaces and say, well, we can't argue, we can't reason in a public sector. Ours is simply a matter of faith. No, we have a reasonable, we have a rational faith. We come to the public arena not to try to tear people down or argue in a divisive manner, manner, but we want people to hear the truth claims of Christianity and to respond in saving faith. 
ion is a testimony to, to the truth of the gospel message, to the coherence of the Christian message, to the deficiencies of secular ideologies. And it should give you hope today that there are people. Yeah, there are a lot of people who will be moved emotionally and come to saving faith in Christ. There are many people who will come forward to the altar call. There are many people who will respond in saving faith at a church camp, and we praise the Lord for them. But there are other people who, sitting in front of a textbook, reading some philosopher who's been dead for a hundred or several hundred years is going to be convicted in their mind and their heart, and they will respond in saving faith to Jesus Christ. We appreciate individuals such as those. With that, one final word of encouragement and hope. If if I would have told you 10 years ago, if somebody would have told me that Ayan Hersi Ali was going to respond in saving faith, that she would go on record undermining her life's work to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I would be astounded. There are people today that you know, that you love, that you've been praying for, people perhaps you're going to sit around the Thanksgiving table from, who you've been trying to reach for many years, you've been praying for, and you think that they're too far gone. They've been harmed by, quote-unquote, religion. They've been burned by Christians. They have uh, a lot of reservations about the Christian faith, about its truth claims. And so you've shot away and you've given up hope. Can I tell you, do not lose hope. If God can reach somebody like Ayan Ali, he can, he can reach your friend, your coworker, your family member with his gospel. His word, his work is powerful. Believe in that. Walk as, as though that is true. I just want to offer you that encouragement as we move towards conclusion. She, in her experiences, she had suffered so radically. She uh, had experienced abuse in the form of genital mutilation. She had seen the dire outcomes of the faith tradition she had maintained. She had been burned, and and I trust that many people through the years of various faith traditions have said nasty things about her, and she has attacked religion at large. But today, she is a sister of ours in Christ, and we rejoice for her. Do not lose hope. Continue to pray. Continue to share the gospel message. I look forward to talking with you next week about some more headlines and what God is doing around the world. May the Lord bless you.